Here's a picture I want you to see. Pastor Brian has never preached on Jude. He can learn a few things from me. But this is all I knew of Jude. How many of you are singing in your head? Yeah. So obviously this is not the same Jude, but there is no theological connection between John Lennon's song written for his son Julian, sung by Paul, of course, to our letter of Jude, except that it's a letter. Both of them are a letter to a beloved one who is going through some stuff. And so when you think of Hey Jude next time, you can think about the book of Jude instead of the Beatles, okay? Um, <clears throat> so when, um, when I get a letter in the mail, a handwritten letter, like those? How many of you send them occasionally? Used to send them more, right? If I get a handwritten letter in the mail, I look at the handwriting, of course. I say, oh, who's, of course, who's it to? And if it's my name, who's it from? And I'll see if I can recognize the address or if the name is on there. And if I know the name and address, and if I see the handwriting I recognize, I can almost hear the voice. I know the person who is going to speak to me. So Jude's letter to his beloved community should have been familiar somewhat to him, to them, because they could also hear his voice because he was likely a leader to the small congregations around Israel. And they would have heard his voice and recognized his handwriting. So here are the first two verses of the book of Jude. Now here's a hard task. Cheryl talked for 30 minutes on two verses that have already been talked about and preached by a scholar and studied by your ladies. You will not believe how many pages I did not put in this 11-page handout. 25 pages of notes. You can really mine deeply. Uh, the editor's pen is going to be good to you, I hope. But here we read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for something that's not right up there, um, <laughs> and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Jude 1 and 2. Sometimes they, things don't translate as well onto different modes. Last week we talked about inductive reasoning, and we called it bottom-up thinking. Remember this picture, okay? Bottom-up thinking. That means we, we take the small and we build up from where we, where we can see to what we might not see yet. So in order to practice this technique, I started off with some questions, some WH questions. Those were in our study guide last week, and these are the ones that I chose. And then I chose some more as I was going along. So your handout doesn't reflect at least one of those. So I thought, who is Jude? From the text and then beyond the text. When did he write this? That's your bonus question. When did he write this and how do we know? Who did he write to from the text and cross-referenced and so forth? And what else does the text show us, particularly about why? And what is next? And that's the application for you and me. So first of all, we're going to look at who is Jude. From the text, we know that he says, uh, I am Jude, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So my first question about Jude is also one about James. We know that he is the half-brother of Jesus by this verse in Mark, and you had one in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 13, um, in which we could see the, the relationship, the familial relationship between Jude and his brother. Jesus came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. 
And verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? What do you notice about the word Jude in that passage? Do you see it? Or do you see something like it? Like it. You see the word Judas, in some translations, it's Judah. Other other areas of scripture that are referring to Jude might use those two different spellings. It's the same person. Jude is the anglicized version of the name Judas. This is not the Judas that you know about. This is Jude. Hey, Jude. This is hey, Jude. Okay, so here he is. He's third in line in this particular sequence. And the one that you read in your scripture uh, study this week, he was fourth in line. So there is at least some likelihood that he is the younger or youngest brother of Jesus after James. Certainly James is his older brother. Uh, But they are the same person. Um, So there are, interestingly... Six or four Jameses in the New Testament, and they're all in this one passage in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is written about the time after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the disciples were told before Jesus left, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. I'm sending someone even greater. So here we have in the book of Acts, in, in the first chapter in verses 12 through 14, people are hunkered down, confused, but Jesus is just made his physical appearance known for 40 full days after his death. So he's resurrected and he's been walking around, appearing to people, potentially to his brothers, making himself known. So just look at this passage. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, the disciples, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, different Judas. And all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus, and here's the other James, and his brothers. In this one passage, we have three James mentioned by name, and one James, the one we're talking about, mentioned by inference. So when I began to study these two little passages, In this book, I thought, who is James, and how do we know this is the right James? How do we know when he says, I'm the brother of James, he means this brother, because he doesn't identify himself, as you know, as the brother of Jesus. So I studied a lot. I pulled out all my hard books, and I looked at what the scholars thought. And one of the things that they showed us is that there is a great similarity between their writing styles. They are both to the point, picturesque, and emphasize practice. And here's an example. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, of course. And both of them have a triplet at the end that I've underlined there, a blessing that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And Jude says that you may have mercy and peace and love. There's a little bit of similarity in their writing style, which might not be that coincidental because the Entrance to most letters are similar in scripture. However, there are more similarities between these two. I have a sister, younger sister, as Jude was to James. She's about eight years younger than I am. She lives in California. I see her rarely. I talk to her once a month. 
But when I do see her, we are always surprised that we are wearing almost the same clothes and we actually own several of the same outfits and we have never, ever shopped together. Neither of us like to shop. <laughs> we don't shop for fun, but we buy the same outfits. One time, I called home and I left a message on my answering machine when that was a thing for my family, some message. And when I came home from where I was, I listened to my message on my answering machine and I heard my sister's voice, so I called her back. And she said, I didn't call you. I said, yeah, I just listened to you. She said, I realized that was me. We share so style and voice, and it appears even when we're not together, even though we're separated by many years. So for the sake of conversation, I'm going to guess that there may be about 10 years between James and Jude, which is similar to the difference between my sisters and me. And the reason that's interesting is because when their books are written, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, so if, if James, if Jude is the younger brother of Jesus, or the youngest, and his name is Judas or Judah, how did his book get into the Bible? Like, it's only 25 verses in one chapter. How did it make the cut? That was a question I had. So I thought, well, how do books get canonized, or how are they part of the canon, which is, means measurement or totality of Scripture? And I did some studying, and by the year 500, and actually by the year 300, this book was readily accepted as a book of the Bible, officially accepted in the year 500. That's many hundreds of years after the time it was written. But it had been widely circulated and understood to be part of the canon of Scripture. It was utilized, and probably utilized mostly, because of the familial relationship that Jude had with Jesus. In other words, he was kind of in. He was related to the guy. So his book got in there for sure. Now I wondered, uh, we know that James, or that Jude here is a humble servant. He's probably mature at this point. I'll talk to that in a little bit. But he calls himself a servant and he doesn't say, I could probably take this off, couldn't I? Oh, don't be jealous. Oh, I forgot. Okay, um, so he calls himself a humble servant or a, a servant of, of Jesus Christ. And I wondered, why is he so humble? And I thought about, like, like if, you were the <laughs> if you were the younger brother of the Messiah, like, wouldn't you write a book like Growing Up with Jesus, Jude's Way? Would you become famous for that? Or would it be so large that you'd be like one of those older siblings that is like a straight-A student and goes off to Harvard and you're just a regular dolt and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to claim that greatness as my own because people will constantly compare me. This is total supposition. None of this is in Scripture. But here's what is in Scripture. This little piece, a couple pieces, referencing Jude's relationship with his brother. So here we have in John 7, 1 through 5, Jesus went about in Galilee of course, this is while he's still alive. This is not after death and resurrection, as the Acts reference was. And now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand, and so his brothers, real brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see your works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're so great, go show everybody else. For not even his brothers believed in him. And you only get the tone of that first part when you see the last part. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Okay, here's another one, Luke 8, 19 and 20. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my brothers and my, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Seems like there was a little bit of a difference between Jesus' devoted disciples and those who knew him forever. And I wonder if that's the reason that in humility at some later point, Jude, who has the scales fall from his eyes, says, oh, I, I'm not worthy to receive you. I'm not worthy to be called your brother, but I certainly am aware that I am your servant because now I understand you are not only a human being who is my brother, you are my Lord and my Savior. And in that context... I am your humble servant. Just guessing. Here's a bonus question for you. When did this book get written? So um, there are scholars that compare much of Jude to especially the book of 2 Peter. And I did a whole study on the writings of Peter. I'm sparing you that. But on, on, in 2 Peter um, and, and in Jude, we see many of the same content references. Now, we're, while we had style references with James, we have actual content cross-references or a literary dependence with Peter. So here's an example for certain people kept, who have crept in unnoticed who were long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who preferred the grace of God. And then 2 Peter uses that same language, condemnation from long ago. He does it here as well. In Jude 7, we see a direct reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and the example that they are. And in 2 Peter, we see it again, Sodom and Gomorrah and the example that they are. We have attributed uh, 2 Peter's letter to somewhere in the late, mid to late 60s. AD. And the reason we know this is because Peter was martyred during the time of Nero, um, being scapegoated for the burning of the city, and um, as Christians being scapegoated, and Peter was martyred in around 68. This letter, the second letter of Peter, was written before his death. And so scholars say somewhere between, between 65 and 67, which is about the same time that they are attributing Jude's letter. So they were writing simultaneously. Have you ever noticed that when you're watching the news, they use the same terms over and over? They're using the same nomenclature for things that they're seeing contemporarily. I assume that when these letters are circulating and we're bringing news of the kingdom of heaven and we're bringing encouragement to the communities gathered that we're using some of the same words of encouragement because they're, they're temporal. You know, language changes over time, but it's useful in a specific setting. So, um, and we know that um, in addition to being written about uh, the time of 65, let me go back a minute, um, that Jude was probably about 55, remembering that he's five years, or maybe up to 10 years younger than, than Jesus. This is actually Jesus' time, so beginning with his birth, not his death. So Adeno Domingo in the year of our Lord, A.D., means Jesus would have been 67 at this time had he been alive. He was, of course, crucified in around 33. But Jude would have been about 10 years younger, at about 55. And let me ask you, when you get closer to the end of your age... Do you get more urgent about the things you want people to know? Maybe just before your kids are going off to kindergarten or to college, you're saying, oh, my, my, time is, my time is precious and I need to tell them everything. Well, the average life expectancy 
or a Galilean of no particular means, 55. So he's looking at the end of his time. And his letter has this sense of urgency to it. Um, we know that um, Jude was Jewish because he has a knowledge of Jewish literature. He has the ethos or the temperament or the concept, conceptualization, worldview of a Jew. He references things that other Jewish people would know. He can say things to them that they immediately understand, like, hey, Jude. We all understand that. That's a contemporary reference that we can refer to. And he's using some extra-biblical sources and some intertestamental sources that would have been known to Jews. Extra-biblical meaning important, historic, um, uh, gave, gave meaning and fullness to those who were reading them, like a C.S. Lewis is to Pastor Jeff Frazier at our church. Someone he is referencing and someone they're accustomed to hearing. Um, but also some intertestamental things, the book of Maccabees, um, which is in, um, in some sources, you can see those in, in some um, versions of the Bible, the Catholic Bible particularly, there are about five extra books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that just give a lot of historical information. And um, Jude mentions some of those things, so they are known to the people. But here's something interesting. He is, um, I'm a screen ahead, I'm going backward. He is a uh, good Greek writer. So we know that the canon of scripture was in either original Hebrew or Greek. But Jude is written in Greek, but he's a Jew. So the question is, and there was some scholarly debate, did he really write this? Because the Greek is really good. Um, scholars say that because he was raised in a home of a carpenter, he would have been um, availed to a better education than the peasants. So he may have had a good Greek education, a good understanding of Greek language to begin with, but he also may have had a scribe who corrected his errors, which I really need sometimes. So um, that is why they can say with some certainty because of the culture of the time that this was written by Jude, a Jew who lived at this time and was the authentic brother of Jesus. So I wonder, though, um, so it, you know, this letter shows kind of his development as both a believer and a communicator. Um, I wanted to, um, I, I had this question, you know, when did, um, when did Jude go from being a skeptic to a believer? And we think that during the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, when he's appearing to many, he's appearing to his brother. And this is when, this is when he began to write as one who was a believer during that time. All right, now the question is, who did he write to? And I love this word. Everybody say it. It's underlined. Beloved. Say it again. Beloved. Okay. Do you use that word often? Is that word precious? That is a, that is a word that says, my heart is in you, and your heart is in me. We are be in love together. We are beloved to one another. He uses that word three times in this letter, and later he refers to the saints. So I'll just read this. Even though this was not today's, I'm, I'm veering off a little bit. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he is referring to all those gathered and listening in their commonness as saints. So what's a saint? In the early church, um, and in Hebrew, the word saint, I'm not going to even try to pronounce the Hebrew, but it is one set apart or another word devoted to God. In Greek, means holy ones. So he's speaking in Greek in this letter to the holy ones 
the beloved holy ones who have a common salvation. That is, these are people who have already accepted that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he is Lord over life and death and he is the savior of the world and they are holy and set apart and different from the culture because of it. We should be different from the culture because of this internal understanding of who Jesus is in the world. That should shift our entire worldview. And although it didn't insinuate that there was a necessarily a, a superior level of living per se, because their identity as saints is all to do with Jesus, we are called in Ephesians 5, 1 through 3, to be imitators of God. He says in another place, be holy as I am holy, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, here's some specific rules. But among you, there must not be even the hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's, say the last two words for me, holy people. So these are the saints of God. Now, in the early church and in some references in uh, the book of Revelation, the word saint is used about 60 times in the, in the New Testament. The word saint um, refers to those who have been prophets and martyrs and saints, kind of in a, in a trifecta there. And so when you, when you think about people who have been martyred for the faith, holy like Jesus is holy, who did what Jesus did, you can see why people would make them their heroes and call them a capital S saint. And that's where that comes from. But when we see it here in scripture, he's referring to all of those who've committed our life to Jesus, not necessarily those who have been canonized by some official body. All right, so we're gonna move on. Um, how many of you can see the difference between these two bills, real and fake? Yeah, I studied them a long time. I studied a lot of counterfeit bills. And the reason it matters is because the way a person determines if something is real or fake is that they know what real is, correct? If you know what the, the real star is, that imposter that they have or the, or the guy that does the stunt double doesn't match up. And if you know what a real $20 bill is, you'll be able to recognize the fake. That's the, that's the way they do that in, in, in the government. We know that at this point, Jude is writing to a generation of believers who may or may not have been eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. Because Jesus died in 33 and it's now somewhere around 67, these, the people who were eyewitnesses may have had children and grandchildren by now. They may be passing the faith on as we do to our families, but here we are a thousand generations out. And do you not lose a little bit of the discernment that you might have had if you were an eyewitness? some of the conviction. So he is, he's writing to second or third generation believers, the residents of Israel, they're gathering local fellowships who be, might be lacking some spiritual discernment. So the object of his letter is to help us to recognize what is the true gospel and what are the aberrations on that gospel. So it's important that we understand what the true gospel is, which is that Jesus Christ died for our sins that we cannot cover up. Only he can cover them up. He offers to cover them up. When we accept his offer, we have a passageway, a renewed relationship with God. That's the one and only way. If there's something other than that in there, anything other than that in there, like Jesus was not really alive or Jesus did not really die, those are aberrations on the gospel. And that's what this letter is addressing. Any kind of variations on that very specific theme. So, what I thought was interesting on one counterfeit page, it said, many counterfeits closely resemble the real thing, except they lack security features that, has the, genu that the genuine one has. They lack 
the security of the true gospel. So I found that to be a kind of a good metaphor. It also said that their papers were, the papers are of a counterfeit are often very smooth as our counterfeit options for us. You know, sometimes they can be smooth and appealing, but they lack security. Plus you can't spend them. You get arrested. All right. Um, what else does the text show us? The text shows us um, his affection. We got the word beloved. It shows his suspicion. He uses the term certain people, certain people. And it shows emphasis. Um, like I said before, a certain amount of passion. He uses multiples, like I showed you three in a row a couple of times during, during um, this letter. And he uses what I call weighted verbs. That means when you choose a really strong verb. I took a writing class or two, and, and um, the admonition for those of us who, who try to write um, is to use better nouns and verbs and fewer adjectives and adverbs. So the stronger the verb, the less you have to modify it or explain it. And he uses some really strong verbs. Um, he uses in verse 2 these multiples. I told you before, mercy, peace, and love. He calls us on the back of your book. He says he calls us, he called and beloved and kept. In verse 4, here's the opposite kind of verbs. Designated for condemnation, pervert, and deny. Three in a row. He does not want us to miss that. Is my time up? What does that sign mean? <laughs> um, he also, we also want to know why did he write this? Now, he tells us he wanted to write about our common faith. Like, he wanted to get together and, like, have a worship service. You know, hey, we all love Jesus. Jesus loves up. Our sins are forgiven. Wouldn't that be a great hour? He goes, but my time is, is otherwise intended. I, I, I have to. I find it necessary to write to you about something more important. But I want to talk about that use of the word beloved particularly. Now, I'd hope to use that funny screen out there, but you're going to have to do this on your own. You have a page where the scripture is written. Pull that out in front of you there. It's on the back side, I think. Yeah. And I want you to, with whatever pen you have, or colored pencils, some of you have a fine display of colored pencils, I want you to, um, this is a comparison and contrast kind of letter. So we are going to compare and contrast the two objects of this letter. So the first is the beloved who are called, or those who are called beloved, that's in verse 1. Put a heart somewhere on or around the word beloved. And then in verse 3, you see it again. Go ahead and put a heart around that word. Now, if you went through your whole 25 verses, you're going to find it one more time near the end. And you're going to find the word love a couple of more times. So every time you find the word love or beloved, I want you to put a heart around it. You can do this in your book. You can do this on the page I gave you. But not only that, I want you to put a heart around the word, the pronoun you, because he's talking to us. And the way he's talking to us is people he loves. So whenever you see the word you, I want you to put a heart around that word. I was eager to write to you, beloved, about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you, Beloved, to contend for the faith that was once and all for, delivered to the saints. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved. You might even put a heart around the word who when it refers to us as well. Now I want you to find the word certain people. This is the contrast. 
I put a parallelogram around this. You remember what that is? That's a slanted tri uh, rectangle. Because I feel like these are slanted people. And I put a parallelogram. I just made it up. You can do what you want. You can put a mustache on it if you want. I don't care. But be consistent. Certain people have crept in on notice who long ago, you can put a parallelogram around that who because it's referring to the same person designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, put a parallelogram around that. That's the same who that he's speaking of. The next word, who, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And I added the word who in there because it is a um, triplicate of three phrases who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And let's not forget Jesus Christ. So put a big cross over Jesus Christ. He's in verse 1, and he's here again in verse 4. These are the three most important characters in this letter. You are his beloved. And he's warning you about certain people. And he's going to tell you, his beloved, how to keep strong in the company of certain people. I like to um, underline strong verbs that, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, that uh, strike me. Some of these verbs are in the, um, uh, uh, in, the, in a tense where someone is doing the work upon us, you know. So passive voice tense, a little more difficult. But if you see a really strong verb in there, like um, multiplied or eager or necessary, those are some strong verbs to pay attention to. In the case of certain people, they also have some strong verbs. So I put two underlines under there and a slash through them. Crept, designated, pervert, deny. When you make your scripture page an art project, certain things may pop out to you. I said I would do a little bit of a demonstration with you this week. You won't be hearing from me for many weeks, so if this is something that helps you to do, then by all means make up your own system. You're not going to be taught necessarily a system in your book, but I will tell you, when I did this, I could tell you that the first paragraphs of this letter were about me, and the last paragraphs of this letter about me, and the ones before it were about a mix of them and me, and the ones in the middle were all about them. Okay? So you'll see a pattern emerge here. You'll see the letter. You'll see the form of the letter. So he writes to show his love. Beloved, he says three times. Love, he says two times. And it's the kind of love that the Father has for us that he's giving to us. First John 3, 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I mentioned a minute ago how you might address your children before they're about to leave the nest in one way or another and how that love would compel you. And we, that's how God feels about us. And that's how Jude, as a servant of God, feels about us. He writes to affirm their calling. He already said our common salvation, that's our call. Later in the book, he says that we have a relational responsibility to those who call us. So when my mother calls me by my middle name, I know I have a responsibility to her. And when we are called by God, like in Isaiah 43.1, I have called you by name and you are mine. We know we have a relational responsibility. Verse 22 tells us that our relational responsibility is to have mercy and save others. And we know this. This is the, this is the Great Commission. And he, reminds to remind them, or he writes to remind them of the promise 
He says, for that which is kept for you. And when I spoke last week, I was talking about us being in the meantime, the time when the, the solution is already done, but we haven't fully realized it yet. And he's reminding them, you do have a promise to wait, to wait for. In verse 21, he says, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that has led to eternal life. And he's writing to wake us up again, uh, with what we're missing. Here it is again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I was in my neighborhood, walking along and talking, because that's the only way to walk. You can walk 10 times farther when you're talking. I can't anyway. And a car pulled up next to us. It was an undercover sheriff's police. And he said, have you seen a car that he described with a guy in it that he described as you're walking along? And we said, no. Now, would we have noticed? Because we were talking. I mean, that was important. Maybe he crept in unnoticed. Maybe he didn't come by us. But either way, it woke us up. Truly, we, oh, we stopped talking and started looking. And this is what this letter does for us. It says, wake up. There's stuff going on around you. It may look peaceful around here. It may look like we're all sheep, but there's a wolf somewhere among us, and you might not be able to see it. Jesus actually says that otherwise. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, the opposite. And you're going to have a work to do. So we see that we have something to do here. And that brings us to the application question. Now what? I'm going to ask these hard questions, either the ones I asked of myself. Do I believe that I am beloved? Not because of who I am or what I do or how much I perform, but because he said so. Because he said so. Because he made me for his purposes and he said so. And do I know the real gospel so that I can recognize any falsehoods? And do I understand what it means to have Jesus as my Lord in other words, do I understand that I am a servant in comparison to everything that he is? And do I mind my influences? Where am I getting my information about him, about my role in his kingdom, about eternity, about life, and about death, and about what matters? So this is what I'm going to suggest we do here today as going forth, forward. We're faithful to do our study to look harder, to ask some WH questions, to look up one extra thing, to talk less and pay attention more, and to share our insights in our group with some confidence, or to ask questions when we don't understand. Just let's do it. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling together. And then let's pray specifically for wisdom as we do it, because the book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask for it. And I'll give it generously. So I'm going to do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is much to know. And the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. But we know one thing for sure, and that is that your plan for our life was to save us so that we could be in relational con connection with God our Father for all eternity and while we have our time here on earth, however short or small, however capable or incapable, you are enough because your gospel saves us and sets us apart as holy. So, Lord, let us live as holy people, as servants of the great master, with fear and trembling and also 
with thanksgiving. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.